Hi everybody, it's Derek and this is And That's The Way It Was for March 6, 2018. I'm going to be joined in a few minutes via Skype by John Pfeffer. John is the Director of Foreign Policy in Focus at the Institute for Policy Studies. He's also the editor of Low Blog, so if you want to know why my writing at Low Blog is much more polished and professional sounding than it is anywhere else, um, he's the guy, he's the reason. Uh, John is a prolific author. He's written on uh, Korean issues, Eastern European issues, on the Middle East, on American foreign policy more generally. Uh, he's written uh, several books, a couple recently. Uh, in 2016, he wrote a dystopian novel called Splinterlands. Uh, last year, he wrote a book called Aftershock uh, on Eastern Europe. And uh, he has written a couple of things recently at Low Blog, or really at Foreign Policy and Focus, and they were also posted at Low Blog that I think uh, are important pieces and we should talk about them. Uh, and that's why I, inv I invited him on to talk with us today. So I hope you enjoy. Uh, I will uh, be back at the end of this to say goodbye, but for now, let's go to the interview. Hey, John, thanks for agreeing to be on my podcast. Uh, <laughs> appreciate you doing this. Hey, it's a pleasure. <laughs> so you wrote a piece uh, recently called uh, Trump's Majoritarian Dream. And I wanted to have you on to talk about it because I think it's a, a, a very good kind of distillation of where not only this government is coming from but where a lot of governments around the world are coming from mm -hmm. uh, and it it really ties a lot of things together so if you could um talk about majoritarianism tell tell us what it is and um what kinds of shapes it can take in different countries and uh maybe ex you know examples that can help people kind of put it in a a context historically. Sure. Well, perhaps uh, one place to begin, since we're obviously having this conversation in the United States, is to talk about majoritarianism and the founding fathers of the United States. And when the founding fathers were putting together the, the Constitution and thinking about uh, the challenges, uh, the, the, the pluses and minuses, if you will, of democracy, one of the concerns they had was what they called the tyranny of majority. And that was a concern that the majority, however understood itself uh, back in early American days, would basically disregard the concerns of the minority. Um, and in a democracy, if a democracy was purely a question of votes, well, the majority could simply vote to either expel a minority or even to, to exterminate a minority and would do so democratically because, of course, they had the votes on their side. So uh, the founding fathers were concerned about this, this potential and built in several mechanisms into uh, both the Constitution and, uh, and the checks and balances of the, of the government more generally – to ensure that the majority would never be able to, well, it would be hard for the majority to do that. And so there would be protections for various civil liberties and various ways for minority representation uh, to be institutionalized in American politics. Um, now, jump ahead a couple of hundred years, and we see that majoritarianism has become a, uh, a threat, if you will, uh, around the world as majorities 
come to see themselves not simply as empowered to do certain things, but actually uh, in a strange kind of reversal, they see themselves almost as the minority, as a besieged majority, a majority that has been uh, constrained, has been handicapped, has been um, uh, kind of uh, restricted by the advance of minority rights and interests. Um, and in the United States, of course, uh, that has manifested itself as uh, kind of the, the triumph of various human rights uh, movements or, or social movements um, for the advancement of various uh, minorities and even, frankly, the advancement of, of majorities like women, um, putting the white majority of the United States on the defensive, feeling as if um, their rights, the rights of the majority, the rights of white people, are under threat um, in this system. So that that's uh, majoritarianism here in the United States. But of course, um, in my article, I talk about uh, the the kind of purer form, if you will, of majoritarianism as it emerged in South Asia um, after the independence of much of the of the continent of the subcontinent from British rule and the emergence of new democratic states, but dem democratic states that, um, uh, as it turned out, became the kind of expression of the majority um, in these countries, whether it was Muslims in Pakistan or Hindus in India. And the, the new democratic systems, uh, in some cases, uh, or in, frankly in most cases, were uh, used by the majority to kind of consolidate their um, their position in society, um, and uh, today the the most dramatic example of that would be in Myanmar or Burma, where you have a new democracy or new quasi democracy um, presided over by Nobel Prize winner Aung San Suu Kyi, and an expectation somehow because of course she was a human rights uh, paragon that she and the new system would uh, kind of, um, speak up on behalf of all of the minorities within Myanmar. Uh, and uh, as we've seen in the last few years, one minority in particular, the Rohingya, have not benefited from, uh, from this kind of new democracy. And in fact, uh, this new democracy, this new majoritarian democracy, has turned against the Rohingya, treated them as... Uh, non-citizens as uh, as worthy of being expelled and in some cases of course of being killed so that's the the uh, this this concept of the besieged majority as it applied in uh, in America in and in South Asia talk about the concept even to go like a step even back from this how you how these majorities are constructed because they're on all, you know, all of these examples of majoritarianism. The majority seems to me to be um, constructed along different lines in almost every case. Like you have the religious, uh, you know, the religious definition uh, predominating in South Asia. Uh, there's an ethnic component that, that predominates in Myanmar. In the United States, it's it's white people. But as you pointed out a couple of minutes ago, a lot of times, you know, it seems like the way you define a majority can cut across 
another majority. So we're, uh, you know, in in sort of protecting the aggrieved white majority, we've elected somebody whose policies are probably not very good for a different kind of majority being women. So how, you know, how does that, how do those kinds of issues play into this? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's an important point. And I, I guess I, I go back to this insight of um, historian, sociologist, uh, Benedict Anderson, and his notion of uh, constructed nationalisms. Uh, imagined communities is what he called them, that um, the national community is imagined. It's, it's, it's not, um, it doesn't uh, exist in any real sense, i.e. Uh, it can't be um, kind of broken down in some kind of genetic way, that it is, the, it is a construction um, by a community to uh, to kind of serve as the foundation for a society, as a kind of prevailing or governing ideology. And this notion of an imagined community, I think, applies to um, majoritarianism as well, because the majority, as you say, is cross-cutting, um, and you people have multiple identifications. They choose their identification, their primary identification, as... Uh, as the circumstances uh, dictate, if you will. So, for instance, women who supported Donald Trump would identify themselves perhaps more as uh, white, white women, um, uh, or perhaps uh, economically as part of a particular class, or um, uh, they might you know, identify themselves as uh, American, part of an American major- majority, but an American majority which they have very carefully constructed to mean certain things. So uh, here in the United States, Donald Trump, I think, was was very clever in appealing to uh, a variety of different kinds of besieged majorities. So, for instance, uh, on the economic side, you know, he appealed to uh, a kind of a, a group of um, workers who felt as if they had not benefited from uh, the, the, the gains of globalization over the years, and that these workers primarily, though not exclusively, were part of um, areas of the country that had predominantly been or historically been kind of white working class. So um, coal miners in West Virginia, uh, manufacturing jobs in the Midwest, uh, now, of course, there are black coal miners and there are black manufacturing jobs um, as well. But uh, but Trump's appeal was uh, was both kind of economically and to a certain extent race based. Um, so that was one way of constructing the majority. But then there was also um, the way of constructing the majority when he was talking about immigration. And I mean, interestingly enough, of course, the majority is an immigrant majority here in the United States. It's an immigrant country. So um, one could make an appeal on immigration for, you know, a a more, shall we say, generous immigration policy based on an imagined immigration community in which we are all immigrants. But that, of course, is not what Donald Trump did. He appealed to largely white, although not exclusively white, um, America as a besieged majority uh, besieged by all of these people coming over from other countries, primarily Mexico. And uh, and so that was another way of constructing this community. 
Um, and again, it's voluntary. You decide as, as a voter whether you belong to this community or not. Um, it's voluntary when we're talking about the majority. Sometimes it's not so voluntary when we're talking about the minority. In other words, there are plenty of people that would like to think of themselves as American and then found themselves on the next flight out of the country as a result of tightened immigration procedures. In So <laughs> this is maybe too psychoanalytical, but um, talk about Trump and, and the way that he's develop this message i i tend not to want to give donald trump any credit for being conscious enough of his surroundings to actually like uh you know voluntarily put together a message like this there are people around him you know steve bannon was around him for a long time who helped craft this but it seems to me like he kind of fell into this message because it mirrors his basic worldview, which is me versus them. Like, it's it's always about his grievances with somebody, with, you know, Anna Wintour or the, the fashion caller, you know, the society columnist in a New York paper somewhere. But he's constantly kind of, you know, tallying up all the grievances against him personally. And that seems to lend itself to this uh, message of the aggrieved majority in america uh, do you think he's consciously kind of aware of what he's doing or is it just sort of a a confluence of a person who has this basic mindset and attracts other people with the same uh you know view of the world around him well, i think that's a very good point i do think there is a kind of intersection between trump's own sense of being besieged um despite his obvious successes economically, uh, and uh, the the besieged quality of, of the majority that he's appealing to. Um, I don't think it was something that he consciously chose. I mean, if you look back at Trump's kind of political trajectory, he's been basically all things at all times. And, uh, and it just happened that his you know, his run for presidency coincided with maximum crankiness in terms of his personality. <laughs> um, but if you, you know, if he had run for president at the in the end of the 1970s, the beginning of the 1980s, he probably would have been, you know, he, he would have still probably been like a law and order Democrat. Um, he would have been conservative in, in some respects, but he wouldn't quite have articulated um, the, the the feelings of this this besieged majority, um, so that that I think is is uh, is an important kind of um, uh, kind of important point you made. But I'd also point to you know um, you know that that key race um, in which that economist ran against Eric Cantor in Virginia, and um, you know this this economist he he his message was was off the wall. I mean, he was an economist and no one understood what the hell he was talking about when he initially ran for, for office. And he polled very, very poorly. Um, and he wanted to run on economics because, of course, that was his strong point and economists <laughs> believe in comparative advantage and he believed that was his comparative advantage. Um, and that showed how deluded uh, the notion of comparative advantage was and how deluded <laughs> he was as, as a candidate. And it was only when he discovered uh, immigration as an issue 
that he was able to uh, mobilize both popular sentiment and also um, fundraising dollars. So, uh, it, and that was in some sense uh, fortuitous, you know, from his point of view. It wasn't like he came came into the election thinking I'm going to run on immigration. Uh, for Donald Trump, of course, he, he'd been party to any number of bizarre conspiracies uh, during the Obama years. So it wasn't as if um, some of the things he said during the campaign were alien to his, his mind view of, or his worldview at that point. But uh, to a certain extent, it was he was a he his messages were um, reinforced by the kind of response he got. Um, at the rallies he went to, the response he got within the kind of far right wing echo chamber, um, Donald Trump is always looking for applause. And when he hears those applause lines, he will repeat them ad infinitum. So I think in some sense it guided him toward uh, this, this position on majoritarianism, this appeal to the besieged majority, because that's where he's getting his, his largest applause line. Do you think, I mean, the most obvious sort of place where this worldview manifests itself in the Trump administration has been immigration. There have been other domestic uh, areas where it's it's uh, shown itself. Do you, but do you draw a connection between um, the majoritarian worldview and the, the protection of, uh, you know, the majority, whatever that may be, and his approach to foreign policy, uh, and particularly I'm thinking about the rise in civilian casualties caused by the United States, uh, even over, you know, what I think uh, you would agree was, was a too high a level under Obama. Uh, it has gone way up under Trump, and it, it seems like there's just this sort of overall callousness about anybody who's not part of his in-group. Uh, and that extends to how we deal with uh, parsing lives, you know, between terror, quote unquote, terrorists in the Middle East and uh, the people who live around them and are at risk from our, our uh, airstrikes. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think um, the, the majoritarian impulses of Donald Trump definitely have their um, foreign policy dimensions. I'm not sure that the uh, this this question of um, the uptick in, in casualties and our military strikes is necessarily one of them, since I think Trump what Trump is responding to is both you know a continuity in American foreign policy, i.e., it was much easier just to continue what Obama was doing and then uh, you know put it up a, a notch. Um, uh, but also his desire to to demonstrate that he was you know a strong president and going after bad hombres, however he defines those bad hombres, and those bad hombres could frankly be you know part of the majority in whatever country he was going after them in, although they tend not to be. But I don't think Trump was necessarily discriminating between minority majority in that sense. Um, but the two dimensions I would I would look to in terms of uh, the impact of majoritarianism is one on human rights in general, and in some sense that applies to, to military strikes, since of course Trump could care less about any human rights dimensions for that. But I was thinking about human rights more generally, and Trump has obviously demonstrated he could care less about um, the the impact of human rights on decision making. So do we sell such and such weapon to that country 
uh, does its human rights record, should that give us pause? Um, how do we feel about the expansion of, of the human rights kind of uh, institution building within the UN or in any other institution? Well, Trump could care less about that as well. Um, human rights as it interferes potentially with uh, the conduct of business. Well, obviously, Donald Trump could care less about that as well. So on the human rights um, uh, in the human rights field, which is, of course, you know, uh, uh, is devoted to the protection of minorities against majoritarianism, Trump could care less. The other uh, dimension would be Trump's friendship with other leaders who have a majoritarian impulse themselves. And there, I think, uh, you know, he, he clearly finds um, uh, kind of philosophical overlap with leaders like um, Mohammed bin Salman, who's, if not the leader of Saudi Arabia, though he probably will be soon, but the crown prince. Um, Saudi Arabia being at 90%, more or less Sunni, and only 10% uh, Shiite minority, which is heavily repressed by the government there. Uh, Vladimir Putin in Russia, um, where, yeah, I mean, Russia is a multi-ethnic country, and at least constitutionally, uh, there are protections for minorities, but Putin himself came to power, um, uh, or arose in the estimation, shall we say, of his countrymen, uh, after his brutal suppression of Chechens and, and the resumption of, of hostilities in the Chechen War in 1999-2000. Um, uh, or uh, people like uh, Recep uh, Tayyip Erdogan, who, again, it seemed when he came to power in Turkey, uh, was concerned about um, preserving minority rights and privileges within Turkey, namely Armenians and Kurds, but has subsequently decided that, uh, given his own kind of uh, imagine imaginary Turkey, that his own kind of, shall we say, um, uh, imagine community of uh, of Turkey that uh, that only the, only certain Kurds and Armenians fit in, and the rest will be hounded and repressed and even killed. So these are the leaders that Trump feels comfortable with, and I think he feels comfortable with them because they have demonstrated that they can quote unquote pull their country together, um, and that there there's no risk of fragmentation. There's there's no risk of uh, uprising, that there is a kind of um, a calmness, if you will, that permits economic expansion, and that the leader themselves, the leaders themselves, are quote-unquote respected um, as Trump would like to be respected. And so that's the second kind of dimension, I think, of uh, where majoritarianism bleeds into U.S. foreign policy. Thinking about it globally uh, there's there seems to be and I, I mean you know tell me if you agree with this but um there does seem to be an increase in this majoritarian impulse happening around the world some of the examples that you cite in your your piece you know russia saudi arabia uh net benjamin netanyahu in israel uh you know the war against the Kurds in Turkey. Some of these things are are long-standing. The leaders are relatively new, but you know Russia has been suppressing Chechens for a long time. The Saudis have been brutalizing the Shia minority there for a long time. Israel and the Palestinians. You know I I don't need to say anything else about that. 
Um, and Turkey's been sort of on and off at war with the, the PKK for a long time. But on the other hand, we have places like India where there's you know been a, a sharp rise, it seems, in, in Hindu nationalism. Um, we have uh, the rise of the uh, Visegrad Four in Central and Eastern Europe that uh, you know have taken this explicitly sort of uh, majoritarian nationalist view of politics. Um, you have uh, the Brexit vote in in the UK, which I think could you know arguably be uh, put in here as a as a, an example of the 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 mindset at least. Um, and you know the us versus them kind of mindset. And I don't know if you, you know, have read anything about the Italian elections yesterday, but it seems like, um, in addition to creating a lot of chaos, uh, it was a, a clear victory for sort of the uh, xenophobic nationalist mindset. Um, you know, it's Steve Bannon's kind of dream political outcome. He's been very praise, you know, very uh, effusive in his praise of Italian politics lately. What do you think, if if you think there has been an uptick in, in this kind of uh, thinking globally, what accounts for it? I mean, Europe, there's sort of the um, the reaction, I guess, to the, the EU and, and uh, the, the counter uh, movement against integration. Um, India, I, you know, it's a little, little less clear to me. Um, and, you know, so if you could talk about, you know, if there's something fueling this around the world, what, what is it? Yeah, I, I think that's an important point. And, you know, I, I, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, the uh, concerns about a tyranny of majority in the United States demonstrates that this, this tension within the democratic project has been there from the beginning. Um, the, what I think has changed in the last, shall we say, two decades, is that there was a, uh, I think, a common conception that there was a, uh, that democracy and the expansion of, shall we call it, a, an international project of um, human rights went hand in hand. That as countries became more democratic, uh, there would be uh, more and more people, more and more countries, uh, would be involved in this, um, this greater, uh, consolidation of, uh, the international system protecting human rights, as well as national and regional and local systems protecting human rights. And that the human, and, and our very conception of human rights was becoming more, uh, finely grained, uh, fine grained, if you will. So, you know, obviously 20, 30 years ago, LGBT uh, issues were not in the foreground, and today they are in the foreground as you know, being right next to all other um, you know, uh, rights that people have been pushing for. So, so that I think was the kind of the notion coming out of uh, the 20th century, coming out of um, you know the post World War II construction of the United Nations, um, Universal Declaration of Human Rights tradition. But that breaks down after uh, the end of the Cold War. And it breaks down for lots of reasons, which we don't have time to go into. But um, a different kind of um, uh, notion emerges within democracies that uh, 
that you do not have to have uh, a liberal democracy. In other words, a democracy that um, connects somehow both to this larger international framework of human rights and connects nationally with uh, a national project of protection of, of human rights. Uh, the emergence of what, what has been called illiberal democracy. Um, and illiberal democracy is, is one way of, of talking about majoritarianism, of the majority population essentially uh, reconstructing or constructing the society to benefit itself uh, as opposed to ensuring um, the protection of, of human rights for, for minorities. So, um, so I think that that's a, a major kind of change. A second is that... Um, that this notion of globalists, of the people who are associated with the expansion of, of these uh, international institutions, um, these globalists are uh, identified as the culprits. Uh, they're the, the people who ha are responsible for everything that has gone wrong in the world today. This, of course, is Steve Bannon's language, um, but it can be found <clears throat> elsewhere, I mean, throughout Europe. Uh, Viktor Orban in, in Hungary, the Brexiteers in the UK, identify the globalists, either the, the bureaucrats in Brussels or the bureaucrats in, at the UN, as responsible for um, essentially besieging the majorities. They besiege the majority of Hungary, they besiege the majority of the UK, and they essentially take away the rights of those majorities to do whatever they want. Um, and the majority, for instance, might want to construct the economy a certain way. They might want to construct um, you know, the politics or the policy realm a certain way. And, of course, they want to uh, set up society a certain way as well. And, uh, and so these globalists become the problem. Um, now, uh, understood more generally, the, the globalists become... Uh, a kind of bipartisan project. And, uh, of course, speaking bipartisan, you know, I betray my American roots. We only really have two parties here. But let's be honest, in Europe, for most of the Cold War period, there were only two parties as well. There was basically a, uh, a liberal party connected with um, you know, labor or social democrats on the left, and then a, a conservative party associated with Christian democrats on the right. And it was these, the globalists in both of these parties that um, joined hands to support the European Union, to support the UN, to support international financial institutions, to support a particular kind of economic reform, particularly after uh, 1979, throughout the 1980s, often called neoliberalism, um, and supported as well a kind of social project known as multiculturalism, in other words, uh, kind of um, a not a mono-ethnic tradition within the particular countries of Europe, but a multicultural uh, tradition reflecting the um, uh, all the new immigrants coming into society uh, as well. So this multi-pronged program of this bipartisan program of the globalists has come under attack by you know, you, you say it's either a populist tradition, as we've seen with the Five Star Movement in Italy, uh, or a far right wing movement 
as we've seen in uh, with the alliance, uh, the alternative for Deutschland in Germany, or even occasionally we've seen left-wing critiques of this bipartisan um, uh, globalist project. Um, Mélenchon in in France uh, has has put forward this critique occasionally. You saw a little bit of it even from Sanders here in the United States. But generally speaking, the left has been handicapped for a variety of reasons. It's association with communism, association with uh, its own uh, kind of implication in austerity economic uh, programs. So the left has not been as strong as the far right in making this particular critique. That leads into my next question, I guess, which is, um, you know, what what do we do, basically? Is this a movement that has to run its course? Is there a way to counter it? Um, and if there is, you know, does that involve maybe looking more critically at some of the left critiques of, of globalism as it's played out since, the, you know, over the last couple of decades? Um, you know, do we just sort of have to ride the wave and hope for little victories like in the 2018 midterms that maybe, you know, Trump's uh, kind of toxic nature drives uh, drives the Republicans to an electoral defeat? Um, what do you, you know, what do you see moving forward for this phenomenon? Well, well first I would say that there's there's certainly nothing inevitable about this current trend, just as there was nothing inevitable about the kind of incremental improvements through you know, this, this internationalist project. I mean, there's sometimes a, a kind of a teleological belief that history moves in a particular direction, and progressives, of course, have been guilty of this for, for hundreds of years, believing that history progresses, and that it, that it, it we don't even actually have to uh, work hard at, at you know, securing these gains, that they will inevitably happen because that's just how history moves forward. And well, now there's the there's the, the sort of demographics as destiny cadre in the liberal space in America that are just sort of, they seem like they're just kind of waiting for the, uh, the country to become majority-minority and for the old, uh, more conservative generation to start dying off. And you don't have to change anything or rethink anything. You just have to kind of wait until conditions are right and everything will be okay. Exactly. And, 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 and that's just not going to happen. I mean, even in the demographic case, when, and that will happen. I mean, we will become a minority white country. But then, you know, people will start identifying themselves differently, uh, just as they have in the past. In the 19th century, of course, the Irish were not white, um, but they became white. Uh, and there are, of course, honorary whites in the Asian community, and there are Latinos who identify as white. And so the whole construction of whiteness will probably change, and not necessarily in, in the best of directions. In other <laughs> words, the majority will reshape itself to, uh, to include others, um, that they have lifted up to um, first-class citizenship, if you will, in order to continue to uh, identify other groups as being second-class. Um, but in terms of, of what we can put forward as an alternative, I, mean, I think uh, if we think of the term solidarity as, as an alternative to um, this majoritarian impulse of constantly dividing first-class from second-class, uh, Solidarity, I think, is, is 
a useful beginning point. So, um, and it, it extends through politics. It, through, it extends through society. Extends through or cultural politics. It extends into the economy as well. So, for instance, um, you know, in in order to let's just talk about the United States for a moment. In order to counter you know, the current Trump uh, economic policy, I think number one, it's important to recognize that those people who voted for Trump for economic reasons were often doing so for for very smart reasons. I mean, smart in the sense of uh, they weren't voting against their own pocketbook. At least you know, this was the, the argument of the um, you know what's the matter with Kansas? That how could people in Kansas vote for the Republicans when the Republican Party was clearly not um, constructing economic policy in the interests of working-class Kansans. In this case, at least as it was articulated by the Trump campaign, uh, Trump voters who had not benefited from the economic reforms of the last 25 years were definitely voting in their interests. In other words, um, uh, Trump to come up with an infrastructure plan. It was in their interest for Trump even to, to impose tariffs. It was in their interest for Trump to attempt the quixotic uh, revitalization of the coal industry, etc., etc. So they were in some sense voting uh, in their own interest. Uh, but that's important. I mean, in other words, uh, in order to construct an economic alternative, we have to start where they are, recognizing that their, their grievances, their economic grievances were were correct, uh, and that the in order to come up with a economic reform that counters both the neoliberalism that didn't produce the kinds of uh, benefits that those communities uh, had expected, um, but also counters Trumpism. And I should mention, of course, that Trumpism, when, once he became president, became an economic reform of a different animal. <laughs> Obviously, when he when revealed with his tax reform, which obviously simply increased the movement of, of capital to the, the richest 1% or 1% of the 1%. Um, but in any case, uh, to come up with an alternative to, to both the, the neoliberalism of the Democratic Party, the naked, um, uh, naked, um, policies benefiting the rich of the Republican Party, and then the populism of the, of the Trump uh, folks, have to come up with an economic policy that starts with the people who have not uh, benefited. Um, and and you know, if that means including uh, elements of, of economic reform that resemble to a, some extent what Trump has proposed, like an infrastructural pl plan, absolutely. Now, it would differ in, in many respects in the sense that it, you know, Trump's infrastructure policy uh, in large part is to benefit you know, the construction companies, and his cronies, etc. Um, in other words, the private sector, whereas uh, I would prefer to see an infrastructure plan that was largely, if not almost exclusively, public sector in orientation. But in any case, there would be elements that would have some uh, similarity. Um, but it would also have to, um, I think it would have to be connected internationally. It would have to um, acknowledge that in order for 
the United States, for the European Union, for East Asia, for all of these areas of the world, for all of these countries um, in these areas, for them to, to move forward together in a solidaristic fashion, we can't just change the economic policies within a given uh, country because that's insufficient. There has to be uh, a, a redefinition of the global economy and of the institutions that that serve as the foundation of this uh, global economy. It's um, yeah. It seems like you know there needs to be uh, to some degree. You know, you, you, we need to get over the idea that I think has been prevalent since the '90s that globalization and free trade are sort of just good for everybody and this is dogma and we shouldn't question it and understand that you know no these things uh create new winners but they also create new losers and we have to figure out how to help the people who do worse under those systems it's not realistic to me you know to go back to a state of protectionism that that leads to a whole host of other problems uh, but you have to be we have to be more honest about the harm that that globalization can do and how we protect people from it. Exactly. I mean, if, if we look back at, at how the EU was constructed, I mean, it was constructed for a variety of reasons. The European Union was constructed, the European community, as it was known in those days. Uh, it was constructed, obviously, as a bulwark against uh, communism, both Soviet communism and the threat of Euro communism. Um, and it was designed to uh, put to rest all of the uh, the adversarial relationships within Europe, particularly between France and Germany, that had had such cyclical damage, um, or caused such cyclical damage to Europe over hundreds of years. But uh, central to the construction of the European Community was this notion of raising the floor. Um, not just raising the ceiling, but raising the floor of uh, within European countries and then within the within Europe as a whole. In other words, there was a recognition that stability, uh, both political and economic stability in Europe, depended on the, um, the, the economic advancement of, uh, of the largest number of people within that society. And that uh, it it was critical to the stability of Europe as a whole for there to be um, parity among all of the, the member states so that there wasn't a large gap between the richest European state and the poorest European state. So the European community was actually a mechanism. It wasn't just a, um, a, a regional organization. It was actually a lever, a lever that was used to raise up uh, people within given societies and then those societies within the European community as a whole. That whole that that's what I would call solidaristic economics. And that principle was left behind in the 1970s, late 1970s and 1980s, um, as both parties, again the liberal left and the conservative right in Europe and in the United States, decided that there were that economic progress could be faster. Um, and that um, greater profits could be made through a, a, basically an intensification of, of the financialization of economies. Um, this is where the greatest um, uh, 
value added, shall we say, uh, could be found in an economy, um, not through kind of broad-based manufacturing or, or far, small farming. Uh, that yielded profit, but not at, at such a high rate as the bond market could or all the new instruments that Wall Street and its uh, counterparts were producing. So I think this is, this is the detour, if you will, that the world took in the late 1970s, 1980s. And in order to kind of rewind, and I don't think, you know, we, we can't go back to the 1960s, we can't go back to the early 70s, um, but we can uh, hit the rewind button on that particular economic uh, transformation and uh, see what we can do to yoke those principles that were there at the founding of the European community to our very modern reality. And of course, you know, in the 1950s, they weren't dealing with climate change. They weren't dealing with automation, uh, at least the kind of automation we're dealing with in the workplace. These are very modern, uh, postmodern, if you will, phenomenon. So how do you yoke these, these solidaristic principles with these very, very modern realities? That, I think, is the challenge that we haven't solved um, at any level in any country. Well, and on that note, <laughs> I think that's a good place to uh, to leave it here with the question, hopefully, to be answered. Um, John Pfeffer, thank you very much for being here. Uh, you can check out John's work at Foreign Policy and Focus, uh, at Low Blog, uh, at his own uh, website, johnpfeffer.com. I'll put links up to all of this stuff in the show description uh john again thank you so much i really appreciate you being here thank you derek it was a pleasure okay uh so again i would like to thank john pfeffer for coming on and talking with us about majoritarianism and its causes and um, its effect on politics not just in the united states but around the world and what we could hopefully maybe do to blunt its impact. Um, I think that was a, an important discussion and it's an important piece. Uh, check it out. I'll put the, the link to it in the description to the show. For the last few minutes that we have here, um, I would like to talk with you about the war in Yemen. Um, as you undoubtedly know, uh, for the past two years, Saudi Arabia and its coalition partners have been engaging in an intervention in the Yemeni civil war, what had been a civil war, uh, that has left thousands of civilians dead via mostly Saudi and uh, partner coalition partner airstrikes that has blockaded the country at times completely, leaving millions of people at critical risk for lack of food, lack of medical care. Uh, it has created the largest cholera outbreak in recorded human history. In short, uh, about one Yemeni child dies every 10 minutes because of the Saudi intervention. What you may also know is that the United States has been instrumental in enabling the Saudis to continue their intervention in Yemen. 
We refuel Saudi airplanes in flight. We help the Saudis maintain their airplanes in between bombing runs. Uh, we sell the Saudis weapons that get used then in Yemen. Uh, American ships have helped the Saudis maintain their blockade, which is ostensibly about uh, preventing arms from getting into Yemen, uh, but has uh slowed down or at times completely shut down the delivery of humanitarian aid to to the Yemeni people. And so this is all being done by the United States. It's fair to say that if America were not involved here, and this is a sort of a deal with the devil that Barack Obama made to get the Saudis to uh, grudgingly go along with the Iran nuclear deal, uh, but it's continued and ratcheted up under Donald Trump, if the United States weren't involved, it's uh, at least uh, highly likely, let's say, that the Saudis would not be able to continue this campaign and would not be able to continue immiserating the Yemeni people. Last week, three senators, uh, Utah Republican Mike Lee, Connecticut Democrat Chris Murphy, and Vermont Independent Bernie Sanders, introduced a privileged resolution that would call for a vote on authorizing, a Senate vote on authorizing America's deployment. It is a military deployment uh, in Yemen with respect to the Yemeni civil war. If they get their vote, and right now they've introduced the resolution as what's called a privileged resolution, which means they should be guaranteed a floor vote, but that privileged status can be stripped out of the measure by Senate leadership. If they do get their vote, and if the Senate does not vote to authorize this deployment, it will mean an end to America's involvement in Yemen, and it will mean an end probably to the Saudi campaign in Yemen, which will mean uh, millions of people getting access to the medical care and food that they need, and uh, nobody dying in any more Saudi double and triple tap airstrikes. And it might spur... Uh, an end to the conflict overall. It might encourage, for example, the internationally recognized government of Yemen, which is nominally still part of the Saudi coalition, to come to the negotiating table and give up the idea that it can militarily retake uh, the whole of Yemen and, and end the war that way. As I say, right now, this is uh, this. I wrote about the press conference that Bernie Sanders and Mike Lee uh, held to announce their bill last week uh, for Low Blog. I'll put a link to that article in the show description. And I'm also going to put a link to a petition that's being hosted by uh, winwithoutwar.org to urge Senate leadership to allow this resolution to come to the floor, not to strip it of its privileged status, and actually have a vote on for a change, for a shocking change, uh, actually have a congressional vote on an American military deployment. This is important not only because of Yemen, although that's uh, the most immediate effect could be to end this terrible conflict, uh, but it is also important in terms of rebalancing the relationship between the executive branch and the legislative branch in this country over the use of force, over the use of military force. 
That relationship has gotten horribly out of whack, uh, as especially as envisioned by uh, the founding fathers, the framers of the Constitution, uh, who never imagined that the executive branch would be given the carte blanche to do whatever it wants with the military that it has been given uh, over the last couple of decades, but especially since 9-11. Congress has repeatedly sort of abdicated its responsibilities for declaring war and overseeing the military uh, out of a sense that uh, people don't want to have that on their record. Uh, senators, uh, c- congressmen, congresspeople, uh, th- you know, don't want to be held responsible for any decisions in this realm, because if things go wrong in a military operation, it's much easier to point your finger at the president and say, well, this was all his doing. I didn't have anything to do with it, than it is to answer for it to your own constituents. And so instead of taking responsibility as they should be doing under the Constitution, they have allowed president after president to do whatever in the hell they want. And that needs to stop. It needed to stop, uh, you know, before our before American troops marched into Iraq in 2003. But it certainly needs to stop by now uh, when a single vote uh, on the authorization to use military force that was passed after 9-11 is being used to justify military operations all over the world against groups that could not possibly have been envisioned by that AUMF. And so this measure, if it's allowed to come to the floor again, and if it, you know, if the Senate opts to exert its right to rein in the executive branch could be the first step in a much larger process of rebalancing that relationship and gaining some control over the outsized, out-of-control global war on terror. So this is a really important vote and a really important resolution for a number of reasons. And so I'm going to put a link to the the petition at Win Without War. Uh, I hope you'll sign it and show your support for this measure. And, you know, if you are the kind of person who calls up your senator or writes a letter to your senator, uh, do it for this, because it's really important. And, uh, you know, these guys need to hear from the American people and hear that we're tired of Congress not taking any responsibility for military action and not exerting any oversight. And we're tired of the United States supporting a brutal, one-sided obliteration of the Yemeni people. So, uh, you know, again, I'm going to put that link up. But uh, for those of you who are already kind of of the call your congressman, call your senator uh, mindset, please consider doing it over, over this. That's all for today. Uh, I hope that uh, my discussion with John helped to clarify or uh, uh, sort of enlighten some of the the trends that we're seeing in global politics and uh, the the rise of these authoritarian-minded nationalist right-wing governments all over the world. Um, and I do hope that you will follow the link to winwithoutwar.org, sign their petition, and do whatever you can to uh, to help bring about an end to America's involvement in Yemen. It is vitally important, not just from a humanitarian perspective, uh, but from the perspective of maybe injecting a little sanity back into American foreign policy. 
Until next time, uh, thanks for listening. Take care, and I will talk to you soon. Bye-bye.